I can't think of a better combination of songs. Christ is our hope in life and death. And because Christ is our hope in life and death, it makes sense for us to set our hearts on Him. As we uh, begin today, let me first adjust my stand here. Uh, as we begin today, just want to draw your attention to the blue prayer inserts in your program. Um, there are a lot of various needs and burdens that are in there. This is an opportunity for us to remind ourselves throughout the week that we are in a family. We're not alone. And when one of us is going through something, we are all going through it. And with all of the things that happen and all of the things that go on, it's easy for us to be overcome by fears and doubts and those voices that seem to scream at us while the voice of the Lord is still and can seem small. We have to listen. So let's lift one another up in those prayers. We help each other to set our hearts on the Lord. As we consider our, our text today and as we begin this new series, uh, we'll be in uh, the, book, <clears throat> the book of 1 Thessalonians. So I'll give you a head start so you can get to finding that. We've gone from the beginning of the, uh, of the Old Testament to uh, about midway through the New Testament. Here's the thing. It can be hard to live as a Christian in our world. If you don't know that, you probably haven't been paying attention. Every conceivable personal identity seems to be embraced, protected, even celebrated, except that of a biblical Christ follower. It often feels like that's the one thing that cannot be tolerated. Oh, the world around us is happy to acknowledge the Christ of memes and cliches the popularized caricature of cool Jesus who just wants everyone to get along and be happy, to coexist, so to speak. Keep your version of Christianity within the culturally accepted boundaries and we'll be just fine. It's all good. Just don't let all that Jesus stuff interfere with our personal lifestyles or agendas. And, and don't bring up the Bible all the time. It's great for inspirational quotes. You know, you need a little pick-me-up and you get that Bible verse that keeps you going. But we don't need any Bible thumpers around here. Of course, we love our daily devotional books. Just take a verse that speaks to me and then write a page of personal thoughts about that one verse or at least loosely connected to it. Better yet, Write about your own personal experience. No one can criticize your own story. Speak your truth. Just don't claim the Bible as the only truth. Besides, the Bible's a, a dry old book. It doesn't resonate with my life. I, I need a, a personal word from God to me. You know, like Jesus calling. They sell it in Christian bookstores, and it's super popular, so it must be good and holy, right? How dare anyone criticize it? 
crazy Bible thumpers. Well, and, and, and don't go telling me how to live my life. I don't want that. I don't need organized religion telling me what to do. After all, God wants me happy, right? It's you religious fanatics that are the problem. Jesus loves everybody. He doesn't care who we sleep with. He would never ask us to stay in an unhappy marriage. He would never forbid me from a relationship that makes me feel happy and complete. You church people are just so bigoted, judgmental, legalistic. Oh, and by all means, never under any circumstances use the word evangelical. We all know that's just code for white supremacist, fanatical, MAGA Republicans who hate women and want to force everyone else to be just like them. Don't use the word evangelical. Evangelicals are so intolerant. Can't have them spreading their hate speech around. So just keep quiet or keep out. Now, we may not be facing the kind of persecution here that's experienced in some places. Gary was just talking about Central Asia. And, you know, when, when Jeff's doing his trainings there, they don't get to use their, their actual real name in most of those places. Because while they're officially open and they don't officially have persecution, uh, the government isn't persecuting them. They're not stopping it either. There's no protection. And so they find all kinds of persecution from the society around them. might not be normal here to lose your home or your life for your Christian faith. But we do face softer forms of persecution daily. And it is increasingly likely to lose one's job or, or a promotion or their standing in the community for being a biblical, evangelical Christ follower. In other words, one who embraces Jesus Christ as the only way, truth, and life and embraces the Bible as his authoritative word. might need to readjust your thinking of what evangelical means, because that's it in a nutshell. The world around us is hostile to Christ and to those who follow him faithfully. The Apostle Paul wrote his letters to the Thessalonian church, 1 Thessalonians and logically 2 Thessalonians, under similar circumstances. Paul's worried about this young church, which was born into persecution and less than a year old. Some of you were here when we were less than a year old. You can remember those early days and the excitement and the uncertainty and all of the things that come together there. Well, that's the church of the Thessalonians. He's not with them and he fears for their spiritual well-being. So he sends Timothy to see how they are and to try to keep them from turning away from Christ amid fierce opposition. Timothy has now returned and reports that the Thessalonians have not fallen away, but instead are flourishing. Paul is overjoyed by this. And he writes this letter that, that we know as 1 Thessalonians to celebrate with them, to encourage them, to remind them that the reality of Christ's return is our source of hope in a hostile world. In fact, that's our core reality for today. The reality of Christ's return is our source of hope in a hostile world. Today, 
as we begin this study in the book of 1 Thessalonians, which will take us the next few months, uh, likely up to uh, Advent. Uh, as we start this, I, I want to start today with an overview of this epistle. As we consider the whole book, I hope that you're going to be able to connect the dots and, and understand and see here why I say that the core reality uh, that we just mentioned is sort of Paul's melody that carries the whole thing along. Since this is an overview of the book, please indulge me uh, as I don't start at the beginning, but instead read from the last chapter, chapter 5. We'll be working our way through the whole thing in the weeks to come, but today let's start there. And I'll read the first 11 verses. Uh, I invite you to stand if you're able to for the reading of God's Word. We don't always do this during the sermon, but when we do, it's to acknowledge the text as God's Word, to separate it in our minds from the words of the preacher. So as we consider this text, let's stand if you're able in reverence. Beginning with verse 1. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write, you, write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day, we do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. This is the word of the Lord read in your presence. I ask you to receive it as such with the authority that it rightly carries. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us your word. Thank you for this letter couched in history that took place between actual real people in actual real events that we might be able to relate to these things. Thank you for your eternal truth. And thank you for the knowledge that you sent Jesus to die in our place, to be raised, that we might be raised with him, justified. And the promise that he will certainly return for us. Help us to find our hope for life and death in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we established here, the, or as we claim, 
the reality of Christ's return is our source of hope in a hostile world. In other words, when Christ's return is our focus, the world's hatred will not be. Think about it. We're only going to focus on one of those things at a time. To the extent that we are focused on the return of Christ, on the promise that He made, on what He did for us and how He has united us to Himself, we don't have time to waste on thinking about the things of this life. God is not an interruption to life. He is life. It is ours to remember that reality to recalibrate, refocus our minds regularly, daily, even moment by moment on the truth that we live for Him. We represent that kingdom here. And in the end, whatever happens here in this kingdom, we don't control it. We're just to represent Him in the midst of it. And the King is returning. To use the picture that Jesus used, that we see throughout this uh, throughout the new testament the bridegroom is returning for his bride and we the church are the bride of christ when christ returns our focus the world's hatred will not be this is the the central theme running through this letter and it's a crucial truth both uh, for the first century thessalonians and also for us we do live in a sinful fallen hostile world But persecution cannot deter those living in light of eternity. Now the letter itself covers something of a variety of topics. Paul's going to deal with a few things along the way. and uh, In in some of the verses there are multiple uh, layers of truth that we can uh, peel back and, and glean from that. But all of it comes under the major ideas of Paul's love for these new believers and his desire to set them strongly on solid footing among a people that has already demonstrated a hatred for the gospel in the church. Woven throughout this letter, this epistle, excuse me, woven throughout these is this thick thread of Christ's return and the hope his people have in light of that reality. So as we study this, we need to consider the kind of writing it is. As we've spent uh, the last year plus in numbers, we were looking at a historical narrative. There were elements of law, some poetry in there, uh, some prophecy mixed in as well. But as a whole, that was, was a historical narrative of what was going on as God's people wandered through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. We're shifting gears pretty dramatically with 1 Thessalonians. We're coming into uh, a genre of literature known as epistles, which basically just means letters. It's a letter from an apostle to the church, uh, and it's addressing issues of the time. So it's much more of a propositional truth. Paul is making truth claims. He's giving encouragement. There's a personal nature to it, as we'll see as we read through this letter. Paul has a personal love for the people that he left behind there at Thessalonica. And as he writes to them, his concern is that they would be walking with Christ. When he gets the report from Timothy that they are, he's just, wow, this is great. I was so worried. And now rather than being worried, I'm, I'm overjoyed. 
I don't want to write to them and say, listen, I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy to hear this. I thank God for you. And I pray for you. Because I recognize the, the persecution you're going through. I went through it. That's why Paul left. And he'll talk about that in the letter. The reason that he was torn away from them was he was chased out of town. <coughs> Had some initial success. And as he dealt with uh, you know, the, the founding of this church, he was only there for three weeks to a month. Right? Picture that. He shows up. He gets three Sabbath days with them in the synagogue to share the message of Christ and establish this church before he's chased out by the Jews who are in rebellion against this truth. And he has to go somewhere else. He ends up in Berea. And, and anyway, as we, as we see this now, he's worried. Because he only had a month to develop this, this foundation of faith. And he knows that they're facing opposition in a hostile city. So he sends Timothy back, and Timothy comes back with this report and says they're doing great. And now he, he says, okay, well, with this foundation, let's, let's make sure we're still going the right direction. And he talks to them about Christian living. He has a love for them. And he wants to see them on this, uh, on this path of faith strongly, firmly footed here. Now, let's talk a little bit about the background. Turn, you can keep uh, 1 Thessalonians marked. We'll be back there. But turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. If we're going to study this letter, we need to understand its context. Paul is the one writing it. He clearly identified and it was ascribed to Paul from the earliest days. There's no real reasonable um, criticism of that. But in Acts 16, Paul is on this missionary journey, and uh, he, Acts 16 is not where he gets to uh, Thessalonica yet, but he is going to find himself in the region of Macedonia. I changed Bibles, now I have to find it all over again. Those of you who were with me in the, in the uh, believing, belonging, and becoming class this morning, you know it's just a struggle when I have to change Bibles and I can't find it. It's not where I expect it on the page. So in Acts chapter 16, uh, looking at verse 1, we see this talking about Paul and uh, he's already split up from his partner Barnabas and, and takes Silas or Silvanus as a partner. We read in verse 1, he came to Derby and then to Lystra where, where a disciple named Timothy lived whose mother was a Jewess and a believer but his father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him, spoke well of Timothy, that is. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Pause for just a moment. Paul's uh, made a pretty big deal and will continue to make a pretty big deal about the fact that circumcision in itself means nothing. It's the circumcision of the heart that God is looking for. All of the old Jewish laws that governed Paul's life up until Jesus broke in and interrupted him. All of those things, Paul recognizes, they're just a shadow. Christ is the substance. And so the circumcision isn't important to Paul, but it is important to the Jews where he's going. So for their sake, for those who don't know Christ yet and haven't come to embrace this, 
he has Timothy circumcised. I'm sure Timothy was thrilled. And, and so uh, this is to offset that opposition as best he can. Verse 4, As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the church is beginning to grow. The Holy Spirit has come in Acts 2. The, the apostles have gathered. Uh, by this time, this is a little bit later on, by this time, uh, James is sitting at the head of the council and, uh, and the word is spreading, but they need to have some sort of, of order and structure and guidance. People can't just wander about aimlessly like sheep, so the Lord has given them shepherds. And Paul is not only spreading the gospel, but he and his team are delivering the decisions, the assertions, the evaluations that the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people that had made for the people. Verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. This is what's going, going on. Everywhere Paul goes, we're seeing this strengthening of the gathering of believers, which is all when we see that word church, we're not talking about a building. For most of them, they didn't have a, a church building, certainly not yet. And eventually when that begins to happen, it may not look much like what we might recognize. But what is taking place is there's an assembly of called out ones and the the term that we translate or that you know that we translate to church is from that term ecclesia and the idea of it is those who have been called out from the masses called apart and assembled and gathered for a purpose paul is strengthening the churches the ecclesias as he goes along Verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. We're not told why. We're just told that the Lord moved them away from Asia. He had that in mind for someone else. Verse 7, when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Notice the Lord sets boundaries here. He has specific plans. Verse 8, so they passed by Mysia, and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia. Keep that, that place in mind. A vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to him. Notice, as a, just a side note here, that we, Luke, who is writing this fifth gospel, if you will, this news of what christ and the holy spirit are doing in the in the burgeoning new church luke now identifies himself as part of the group we did this rather than they did this there's a transition in this general time frame so luke has joined them he goes on verse 11 from trust we put out to sea and sailed straight from from uh for samothrace and the next day on to neapolis from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. Okay, so you might recognize Philippi from the letter to the Philippians. It's a place that they will stay and do work. And it's in this region of Macedonia, what we, it's a, a, today is a, 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 an administrative uh, part of Greece, but at that time, there was once a kingdom of Macedonia. That's gone away by this time. It's a Roman province. It's a part of this here. But it's covering a, 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 
a wide area of what we might see just north of the Aegean Sea. And as, as they're in uh, Macedonia, there is a uh, what we call a diaspora, or a diaspora if you prefer, the spreading out of the Jewish nation among the other nations. This has happened uh, at several points throughout history, but by this time, uh, throughout all of the Roman Empire, there are pockets of Jewish believers, or of, of I should say of Jews. And Paul is going from city to city in these Gentile cities that are filled with Jewish pockets from the diaspora or the diaspora, those are, who are spread out throughout here. And because of the Jews in these Gentile places, you have what's become sort of a, a syncretized Jewish faith in many ways. There's a Hellenization that goes on. In other words, you have Greek-speaking Jews who are in many ways culturally Greek or Greekified, Hellenized, but still Jewish. At the same time, the Jewish influence has won over many, uh, many of the Gentile believers, many of the non-Jews. I said believers, I meant people in general. As, he, uh, as the Jewish uh, Bible is spread out, people are seeing the Jewish religion and realizing, wait, there's something to this. This is different than the poly polytheistic world that we've lived in. And they very often are coming to learn to worship with the Jews at the synagogue. In Jerusalem, this takes place at the temple. But in all of these synagogues where they gather to receive the Word of God and to worship God together, we see what are called God-fearers or God-worshipping Gentiles. Whenever you see that term God-fearer or God-worshipper in the New Testament, it probably, in most cases, is referring to Gentiles who are not Christ followers yet, but have recognized Yahweh as the one true living God. They're not Jews, but they do recognize the God of the Jews. So that's gone on throughout this area of what had been the Greek Empire, now is the Roman Empire, and now Paul, in this region of Macedonia, is going to churches where there are already Jews, who already understand the first 39 books of what we recognize as the Bible, but have never heard about the last 27. Most of them don't exist yet. But they haven't, they haven't known Christ at all. They're still waiting for a coming Messiah. So Paul goes and he shares with them this good news. He shares with them the gospel. And he's seeing uh, many people along the way receiving Christ, recognizing the truth of this gospel, embracing it as actually good news and putting their hope in Christ. Now, verse 11, we see what is his pattern. I'm sorry, verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a, a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman called Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, because they believed, they opened their heart to respond to Paul's message, therefore they were baptized to identify with that, she invited us into her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. 
and she persuaded us. If you uh, jump ahead, this, the next section talks about Paul and Silas in prison. I'm tempted to read it because it's an awesome story, but we want to jump ahead to chapter 17. So Paul and Silas, or Silvanus, have picked up Timothy along the way. They've ministered in Philippi. They've moved, you know, they're moving around Macedonia. And they're about to get to Thessalonica in chapter 17. But we we got to see 17 and into 18 to be able to understand 1 Thessalonians because this is the setting for him to write this. All right, so notice verse 1. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As, was, as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, three, three weeks here, three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. This was the pattern of what he did. This was his custom. He'd go into a new place. He'd find the Jewish synagogue, and from the scriptures they already acknowledged, he would reason with them. He would meet them where they are and take them from there to Christ. And he would use the Old Testament to say, look, you're waiting for the Messiah to come. And I'm telling you, he's already come. And here he is. And he lays it out. And he says, now look, all the, all the Jewish unbelievers are telling you he can't be the Messiah because of what he suffered. And I'm pointing out to you from the Scriptures, he had to suffer those things to be the Messiah. And he convinces many along the way. Notice here in verse 4, some of, the, some of the Jews, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. So you get a, a handful of the Jews who are there at the synagogue, but you get a large number of those Gentiles who received the Holy Scriptures already, who already recognize God as God, and now they're saying, oh, wait a minute, I can see this. I'm, I'm connecting these dots here. And it's significant that he points out it's not a few prominent women. A couple of things you should notice that. First off, it's not a few. Some Jews a lot of Gentiles, and a lot of women are receiving this message. Not only that, not only is it heavily Gentiles and women, but they're prominent women. These are women of means. Women who have gained some standing in society. They're not desperate. They're not trying to find a way up and a way out. These are women who already have standing in society. And they're willing to change everything to follow Jesus. Some Jews believe. Large number of God-fearing Greeks. Not a few prominent women. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. This is the problem. This is where the hostility comes in. And I would suggest to you that this is the hostility that we see very often even today. When it's talking about jealous, there, there's a resentment of a rival. If I'm jealous of somebody trying to put moves on my wife, which <laughs> pretty sure she can handle herself, but it's not that's not me being, you know, the the you know the 15 year old boyfriend who's freaking out because I saw my girlfriend talking to some guy at the locker and now I'm mad and I can't handle it. It's the 
the right resentment of somebody who is an interloper trying to break in where they don't belong. That's fitting jealousy. Any kind of jealousy is going to be that resentment of a rival. God describes himself as a jealous God. He will brook no rival. Nobody is entitled to our affections but him. However, these Jews, much like many of us and the world around us, they're jealous for the way of life that they have identified with. They think they're being zealous for God. What they're actually being zealous for, as Paul will point out in Romans, is an ignorant form of religion that lacks a knowledge of God and lacks any real power. But it's theirs. This is what we know. This is what we believe. I've made up my mind. Don't confuse me with facts. I've already determined this is what the Scriptures must mean. I will not listen to your arguments from the Scriptures that point out anything else. So they're angry. They get very worked up. Like the, like the angry uh, atheist who wants to promote an old earth evolution, not because they just are, you know, this is my evidence and this is what I see, but I'm passionate and emotional and angry about it. The Richard Dawkins type, the Christopher Hitchens type. I'm, I'm jealous for this, therefore I cannot tolerate any other thought. And far too often we as supposed Christ followers end up doing the same thing. Now don't get me wrong. There's a time for an open mind and there's a time to close it. When, when you have an open hole and it's empty, you can fall in it. Don't do that. When it's filled up with something, then it's time to stop. Once you've found the truth, there's no reason to keep looking, to keep searching, to find some sort of religion that works, that feels better, that fits right. At the same time, when we found truth, there is no reason to fear any question. Christians have no reason to shut down debate. So let's stop doing that. Let's stop saying, well, I, I don't want to know anything about science. I don't want to, I don't want to know anything about you know, these other things because I have the Bible and that's enough. Okay, that's true, but it sure sounds an awful lot like you're afraid to think. God has never called us to blind faith and He never will. He calls us to a reasoned faith. Anyway, Paul comes and he reasons with them. And we see that some of the Jews believe, but the, the majority of Jews in this city are jealous. How dare you question? How dare you bring this new teaching? So they rounded up some bad characters in verse 5 from the marketplace. And they formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. 
Then they made Jason and the others post-bond and let them go. Notice, you have Jewish people who don't like the Romans. They're not big fans of Caesar. Who are acting like they are friends of Caesar because they hate Jesus. (laughs) The enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Notice also, they're not trying to convince anyone else that Paul's argument does not have merit. That would be a very Greek thing to do, right? All this Greek influence. You'll see that in Athens when he gets there. But they're not trying to have a debate. They're not wrestling with this and saying, well, here's why we think your argument is invalid. No, they're trying to physically roust them. Get them out of here. Get them arrested. Shut these people up. How dare they? It's not Christians. In fact, it is not a Christian character trait to shut down free speech. We need to keep that in mind, by the way, in our civic living. We often uh, are chagrined by those who want to take away the freedom of speech to speak our convictions, and then we're just as quick to try to do that to somebody else. If we, because of God's sovereignty and and His uh, gift of autonomy to us mentally and as a church, if we have the freedom to speak what we believe to be truth, then we dare not stop anyone else from speaking what they believe to be true doesn't make it truth, but they do have the right to speak it. We cannot fear it. Back to the text. This this, uh, impact is that it stirs up the crowd and the city officials are thrown into turmoil. Why? Because they got bad characters from the marketplace and they formed a mob and they started a riot. Thessalonica, like so many of the places that Paul stops in his missionary journeys is a trade hub. It's located at, in, the, in the northwest corner of the Aegean Sea in what's known as the, the, uh, the Thermic or the Thermian uh, Gulf. And it's, it's a, a seaport there, and it's at the, the, the intersection of two major roads during the, the Roman time, remains of which you can still see in some places. One is the road that goes from the Danube down to the Aegean. And then the other is known as the Via Ignatia, the Ignatian Way. These are major trade routes in the Roman Empire. So going to the marketplace and doing what we see in Ephesus as well, stirring people up that these rabble-rousers, these Christians, which is a derogatory term at the time, as I said that, I felt like I sounded like my old friend Dave Moorhead, but anyway, it just, I felt like I was mimicking his voice. Three of you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, as, as this stirring the pot in the marketplace comes up, very likely they're approaching it from an economic perspective. That's what happened in Ephesus. When they cast out a demon from a, from a girl in Jerusalem, Peter and John did. They ended up in jail because the people were upset they couldn't make money off of this girl who was predicting the future. They go to Ephesus and they get people stirred up about the false idols that they're worshiping at the temple of Artemis. And now people are throwing out their sorcery books. They're throwing out their their uh, their temple figures. 
And and uh, Silversmith's like, wait, whoa, whoa, hey, wait a minute. You just killed my market here. That's not going to work. You can't take money out of my pocket. And they end up having a riot in Ephesus and running Paul out of town. Here, presumably, I think it's a reasonable presumption, that's the approach the Jews are using to get this mob stirred up. And then they go to the city officials and say, look, these people, they're outlaws. They are trying to say that there's another king besides Caesar. And Paul ends up having to, to run. Notice what we see here um, in verse 10. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed. It was some in Thessalonica, many in Berea. Many of the Jews believed, and, and as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So we're seeing in Berea a difference. In the synagogue, what's happening is they are embracing the Scriptures. They're not just saying, hey, Paul's a great speaker. I'm gonna, I, he's got a good argument. I'm going to buy it. They diligently search the Scriptures. Why? To see if what Paul said actually matched. You know what happens when we search the Scriptures? We find God to be faithful. We find the truth of the Gospel to be abundantly obvious when we willingly submit ourselves to the holy word of God. As long as we sit in judgment of God's word, we're going to see through our eyes. But when we recognize that God's word sits in judgment of us, then we begin to see through spiritual eyes. Then the Holy Spirit takes our stony heart out and gives us a heart of flesh. So here in Berea, a smaller town than, than Thessalonica, which is one of the major towns and still is, in Berea, you see many Jews believing in the synagogue and the Greeks and the women. There's more because God's word is more prevalent. Continuing, verse 13, when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they should be happy, right? You're not here. You're gone. You're, you, you've gotten out of our town. Nope, that's not what happens. When, when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, okay, so they sent him to Athens, Silas and Timothy are not with him. He was greatly distressed to see that the city of Athens was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the, and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So he's in the synagogue, but he's also out in public, out in the community. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know, <coughs> excuse me, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? 
You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. It's kind of like, uh, you know, Twitter. Formerly Twitter, now X. Come on, Elon. Anyway, notice the difference in response in Athens from either Thessalonica or Berea. We don't see a lot of focus on what's going on in the synagogue. Some, but when he's out in public, in the marketplace, the Areopagus, they're listening. They're not necessarily buying it yet, but they're listening. The Jews in Thessalonica are so jealous about it, they are so angry about it, that they go to Berea to shut it down there. No, 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 you, you better not read that Bible. Don't you read that Old Testament with Paul. Take our word for it. We'll tell you how to believe. The rabbis have said this. Therefore, don't be confused you know, by the holy book. There's a different response in Athens. They don't, as a group, as a people, know God or care. But they know many gods. And they know philosophy. They do nothing but sit around talking about smart thoughts. Listening to the latest ideas. So they want to know more about it. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. Meeting them where they are. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. You must be religious. You have an altar to anybody you might have missed. Just in case, there's, there's this God that we don't know. We're going we're gonna to have this altar here and so, yeah, we're, we're, we're religious people. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. and does not live in temples built by hands. This, by the way, is the foundation of Jewish and Christian thought. Genesis 1 is the foundation. Why does it matter? Because He is the God of all creation who created everything. Because He is the God of heaven and earth, He is the Lord of heaven and earth, He is in charge. It's a recognition of His sovereignty. Every other aspect of life falls under that. 25, And He is not served by human hands as if He needed anything, because He Himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man He made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And He determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He's not far away from each, each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. Here in 31, as Paul is talking to unbelieving academics in Athens, he is 
drawing their attention to the fact that God has already placed a time when He will judge the world. And He's drawing attention, without the details of it, He's drawing attention to the fact that Christ will return as the appointed one to judge with perfect justice. He continues at the end of verse 31, He has given proof of this to all men by raising Him, Christ, from the dead. Notice their response again of 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. You ever been sneered at for your faith? You ever been in a place where, where people are like, you don't believe that, do you? I mean, really? You're really going to still hold to those old, old teachings? Isn't that a little outdated? Aren't we a little better than that now? Some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He went from Athens to Corinth. Why, why do we keep going this far? Because we, it appears that he writes this letter, 1 Thessalonians, from Corinth. So remember, when he's in Athens, he doesn't have Timothy and Silas. They're going to join him. He gets to Corinth. Okay. After this, Paul left Athens, went to Corinth. Verse 2, There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Notice verse 5, When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, from Berea and, and wherever else they might have gone while they were still there, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. He was able to focus more because his team showed up. Right? Six, but when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, this is in Corinth, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he goes on to, to preach next door. He gets a house next door and he, and he preaches there. And Paul says, that, that's it, I've had enough of you. I'm not wasting time on you anymore. My focus is on the Gentiles. He was already preaching to the Gentiles with the Jews, but now this is the exclusive focus. If you're going to keep rejecting, eventually God shuts the door. It matters for us to recognize what's going on here that they are in Corinth, as, or that Paul and his team are in Corinth as they're writing to first uh, to the, this first letter to the Thessalonians. Because notice how quickly this is happening. This letter was written about A.D. 51. Yes, I still say A.D. So as, as this is being written, this is... Paul's first canonical letter, unless there, there's a possibility of some place Galatians in an early date. I don't think that's, uh, that's not the oldest way of looking at it. So uh, according to all of what we see, 1 Thessalonians appears to be Paul's first letter, and in all likelihood, the first New Testament book written. That means it's less than... 20 years from the time of Christ's death and resurrection. What were you doing 20 years ago? 
<laughs> some of you are like, I wasn't born yet. Some of you are like, wasn't that just like five minutes ago? You know, 20 years ago, I had a little bit of hair still. How many of you that are, that are over 20 years, let's say 25, how many of you can remember 20 years ago? Raise your hand if you can remember 20 years ago. So what if somebody came to you and tried to tell you something that happened 20 years ago that you know personally was not true because you were present? Pretty tough to sell that. So as Paul is writing this letter, he's talking to people and about people who were able to refute the story, who were able to actually have a timeline connection to the gospel itself, to the person and work of Jesus Christ. The, this early letter is pretty clear evidence that the gospel message and what we have clung to for 2,000 years wasn't just made up, can't have just been made up later on by church fathers who were trying to create a religion. It happened as the Bible describes it because if it had not, these claims are being made early enough for eyewitnesses to say, you're nuts, that's not what happened. We were there. Instead, we see corroboration all over the place. All right. Now, this important letter is written to this people who only had about three, three weeks, maybe a month with Paul. They became believers. They became the church meeting at Thessalonica. They know Paul was ripped from them because of the persecution they were facing. Now, if you're only half in, if you're not entirely sure if you believe it or not, and you see Jason arrested for just supposedly for having them at his house, for just welcoming them, you see people run out of town, you see your neighbors get so fired up that they travel to Berea to try to get Paul beat up and arrested. They're, they're, they're going to take this guy out. Are you going to hold on to your faith? Are you going to keep going to, to church to talk about Jesus? Man, you better be darn sure. How do you hold on in that sort of opposition? How do you cling to the grace of God under that kind of fire? The reality of Christ's return is our source of hope in a hostile world. Let me just run through these, these uh, five observations here that we'll develop as we go through. We won't take a lot of time on them today. I want you to see them, and, and you can turn the pages with me uh, in First Thessalonians just so you can see them, but we're not going to take the time to do much uh, reading here. I'll point some things out as we go. All of this is hinging on the church being the bride of Christ, waiting for the bridegroom to return. Even though that's not the phrasing that he uses here, I'm using it anyway because I can and it works and it's biblical. When the bride of Christ is focused on the reality of his return, these five things are true. First off, when the bride of Christ is focused on the reality of his return, the church has deep concern for one another. The church 
the people of God, those who are united to Christ, has deep concern for one another. Notice in chapter 1, as Paul is laying this out, he's giving thanks for the faith of the Thessalonians. Ought to be Thessalonians, but anyway, as, as he's writing this, the reason for it is his investment in them. He's deeply concerned. He's so concerned that he sends Timothy back Timothy, you got, I, I can't go there right now, but you've got to go and make sure that they're established. Encourage them if they're wavering. Tell me how they're doing. And he wants to be with them. He'll tell us that in, in chapter 2 as well. It's hungry. It's a hungry kind of love. The church has deep concern for one another. Notice second, when the bride of Christ is focused on the reality of His return, the ministry of the Word has, is a personal investment. When the Bride of Christ is focused on the reality of His return, the ministry of the Word is a personal investment. Now, in each of these chapters, remember these chapter breaks were added later in translation. They weren't in the letter originally. But at each of these chapter breaks, uh, at the end of each chapter, there's a specific mention or, or a very clear allusion to the return of Christ. It's central to Paul's thinking. We saw it in Athens with folks who weren't even uh, aware of the resurrection as a, as a good Jewish person would be. But he's telling them, listen, this return of Christ, the eternity with Him that we have, this drives everything that we do. Notice in chapter 2 as he describes to them his ministry among them, the ministry of of Paul and, and Silas or Silvanus and, and Timothy. He says to them, we didn't just share the word with you. We loved you so much that we shared not only the gospel, but our lives. We shared our lives with you. We invested in you. And we opened ourselves up to you. And in the process of this, as we were opening up our lives to you, you got to see the kind of life that we lived before you as an expression of the, of the word that we were preaching. It was more than just preaching because it was the job. It was a personal investment. We loved you so much that no matter what was going on, we were going to share the gospel with you and share our lives with you. When the bride of Christ is focused on the reality of his return, the ministry of the word is a personal investment. Notice also, when we're focused on the reality of His return, we're encouraged by the faithfulness of others. We're encouraged by the faithfulness of others. In the rest of chapter 2 and in through chapter 3, you see Paul dealing with uh, the issue of, here's my investment, my deep concern for you, and because of that deep concern for you, I, I just want to be with you. We've wanted so many times to come and visit you. I personally have wanted to come and visit you. And Satan hindered us. So I wasn't able to be with you in person, but our thoughts are never far from you. And when Timothy came, he just got here with this great report about you. When Timothy came, we were filled with joy. In fact, he, he, he points out to them, isn't our very glory and joy in the Lord. Isn't it you? Aren't you our glory? Aren't you our joy? This investment 
because of love that brought us to preach the word to you also brings us encouragement to know that you're doing well. When a Christ follower sees someone they've shared the gospel with, not only find that gospel to be true and to trust Christ with their whole heart, and then to walk in discipleship and see that growth. If you've been through that, you know that is the biggest blessing you could ever hope for. Say amen if you know what I'm talking about. If you have shared the gospel, seen someone saved, whether you were able to, to you know, have that culminating conversation with them or not, when you were able to see them walking with the Lord, even if you're not with them, that just lifts your heart up. When you see someone you love doing well, it's an encouragement to your heart. The writer of Hebrews will tell us not to forsake the assembling together of ourselves because in this assembling together, in the gathering of the church, we encourage one another. We spur one another on to good deeds. Seeing you here today builds my faith. It encourages me. It strengthens me. Seeing you turn the pages of the Bible as we're studying together encourages me. And when we're focused on eternity and the reality of who Jesus is and that He's coming back for us, then we become encouraged by one another. When we see someone else, it doesn't even have to be in our particular household of faith, we see another church that preaches the gospel growing, we're excited for them. We hear about these missionaries working in, in Central Asia or, or Myrtle Beach or wherever they are. We get excited about that because it's life and it's reality. And when the bride is focused on His return, then we're encouraged by the faithfulness of others just as Paul was with the good report he got from Timothy. Next, notice that when the church has our eyes on the return of Christ, and we're living in light of eternity, then living according to the flesh no longer makes sense. Living according to the flesh just no longer makes any sense. In chapter 4, he, he talks to them about what it, what it looks like to be a Christ follower. He has a tendency to do this in a number of his letters where he'll give uh, propositional truth, who you are in Christ. Ephesians is a, a great example of this where the first half of the letter is all about who you are in Christ, what God did for you by sending Jesus to save you. And then the second half of the letter is, well, now that you're in Christ, this is what it looks like to walk as someone who belongs to Him. In the same way, he says that to them here. Look, in light of what we know, you're, you're strong in the face of this persecution because Jesus is coming again, and you know the persecution was destined to happen. And you know that when He comes, He will judge the wicked. And you know that you've been united with Him, so when He comes, you will rule with Him, reign with Him in eternity, and that's great. So live like it now. Live, if we borrow from Jesus' parables, live like the worker who knows that the Master is returning so that when He comes back, He will find you doing what you were called to do. If we're living in light of His return, then living for the flesh, living to, according to our own understanding, our way of doing things, it just doesn't even make sense anymore. But I really, really want to do this. Yeah, but Jesus might show up. Is that really what you want Him to be finding you doing? 
Do you really want him to find you thumbing your nose at, at, <clears throat> at the wisdom of the Scriptures? Do you really want him to find you caught up in temporal things, so consumed with your job or your pleasure that you're not concerned about eternal things? No, living for the flesh doesn't even make sense anymore. Lastly, notice this. When the bride of Christ is focused on the reality of His return, thoughts of the Lord's return bring joy, not fear. When we're living in light of His return, thoughts of that return bring joy, not fear. In the second half of chapter 4, I'm going into chapter 5, there's sort of a crossover in these chapters of the, of the right living in the now and also how we handle grief. A passage that, that most of you are probably familiar with in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. says, I don't, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, so that you grieve like the rest of the world, who they don't have any hope. But you know better, because Jesus is coming. And the ones who have already died in Christ, they're not going to be left behind. They're going to be caught up in the air with Him even before us. We'll get to see it. This is your hope and your encouragement. When all the world is is watching Hollywood movies about the apocalypse and everybody's talking about the apocalypse and the end is near and all that. Man, when you're in Christ, that's no longer a point of fear. Now, if you're outside of Christ, it should be. Because when the judge comes back, there are only two kinds of people. Those who pay for their sins and those who have already embraced Christ's payment for their sins. And there is no in-between. That's it. And all who are outside of Christ, when He returns, will face the wrath of God. And it should cause fear. That's right. But man, if you're in Jesus, you're the bride waiting for the groom to return. And as Gary read for us earlier from Psalm 130, it's my soul waiting for the Lord like a watchman waiting for the morning. I can't wait for Him to return. It's the end of my shift here as an ambassador. And I get to go home. When we're focused on living in light of His return, then thoughts of that return bring joy, not fear. As we work through this letter together over the coming weeks, keep in mind this, this melody this core reality. That the reality of Christ's return is our source of hope in a hostile world. When you're facing the junk that you face, and that blue prayer sheet tells me that there's a whole lot of junk that we're facing. And there are many things that aren't on there. Many of us are holding on to bitterness. Many of us are being mistreated. We're watching our loved ones suffer and we can't do anything about it. And this world is a mess. And we see what's on the horizon in society and we, we just don't see any hope of it getting better. And it's just hard to be optimistic. Where do you find hope? 
the hope that we are offered is the reality of Christ. That God loved us so much that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that while I was a sinner and far from Him, by my very nature, an object of His wrath, that's when He sent Jesus to pay for my wretchedness, to pay for my sin. Now, if I take hold of that and I'm united with Him by faith, how can I not tell others there's hope? There's hope in Jesus. If you keep doing what you're doing, keep living like you're living, keep thinking what you're thinking, as if you're the God of your life, you will die and face His wrath. But you don't have to. This world is not our home. This is not the end. And all the junk that doesn't get right here will one day be made right when Christ comes and He judges the wicked and nobody gets away with nothing. And He builds a new heavens, a new earth. And we get to be part of that. That's our hope. Let us live every day remembering that we who have trusted in Christ are His church. We are His bride. And He is returning for us. Let us find hope in this hostile world knowing that this world is not where we belong. We're not home yet. Let's pray together. Father God, it's easy for us to get our eyes distracted by things down here. Help us. Help us to keep our, our minds, our hearts set on You. Set on things above in heaven where Christ is seated at Your right hand. And by Your grace, and by faith in Him, we are seated with Him. You have already given us the assurance of our inheritance and every spiritually blessing, spiritual blessing in Christ. Remind us regularly by Your Spirit of these things that we might live in light of eternity and that the reality of our Lord's return would be the strong foundation, the source of hope in life and death for us who trust Him. No matter what the opposition we face in this hostile world. Lord, we pray these things by Your Holy Spirit, in the name of Your Son, and for Your glory alone. Amen.